Well, our culture is extremely polarized. I don't think I have to tell anybody that or argue at that point. Meaning, culture says, just pick a side. Whatever your side is, whatever sports team you're on, are you Democrat, are you Republican, are you a Yankees or a Mets, are you Vax, are you no-Vax, are you liberal or conservative, are you pro-guns or do you hate guns? Like, just pick a side, just whatever it is. We owe much of this polarization to social media where you get to express yourself and just post it on, on the stream and the feed and then everybody gets to disagree with you violently in the comments if you're on the wrong side, of course. We snap to judgment about someone and then we, we retreat back to the safety of our own side. We get pressed into a corner and we feel the need to declare ourselves and say, this is what side I'm on. And brothers and sisters, for us, this should not be. Not only in our culture, of course, but especially for us as Christians. Christians should never be reduced to just pick a side. And here's sort of my whole underlying thesis for this passage this morning. Because disclaimer, as you've already seen, we're rolling into some deep waters here. And we're on a a head-on collision with our culture at large. My whole underlying thesis this morning is that as Christians, of all people, we should not be picking a side, we should be engaging these issues with the Word of God. That's what we have to do. Our first reaction is not what side we're on, the first reaction is what does the Word of God say about this issue. Why? Because our positions on issues cannot be informed by culture. We are to have a biblical worldview, not a cultural worldview. And thus, our positions must be informed by the Bible. We need to engage these issues with grace and with the Word of God. And Jesus is going to teach us a master class this morning on how to do that. Last week, we finished our little three-week mini-series on the kingdom of God. We saw over the course of three weeks how the kingdom of God is a place like no other. It's a place of purity, and it's a place of forgiveness, It's vital as we head into this difficult passage that we keep that immediate context in mind. In the kingdom of God, we seek or see how much rather we can please the king. That's the goal. We're in the kingdom, so we want to please the king. The goal uh, is not then how much sin can we get away with. The goal is then how can we please the king. That's a critical perspective for us to keep in mind as we jump in. Look at Matthew chapter 19, we left off in verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So Jesus, after the massive section of teaching in chapter 18, he heads down for the arduous journey south to Judea and let the map people rejoice, for there's a map. That shows us. So Jesus is up here in Galilee, right? I'll give this side some love too. Up here in Galilee, right? And he's got a trek down to Judea. And he probably went like this. Probably went through Perea. Probably would definitely spend some time in Samaria. It's a long and arduous journey, as you can see. And we don't get to see or get to hear or listen in on all that car time that was going on between him and the disciples when they were traveling down. These moments tell us maybe like the last verse of the Gospel of John, which tells us, you know, if I recorded everything that Jesus did, there would not be enough books in the world to write down everything that Jesus did. So we have to use our imagination, and we have to remember that Jesus remained on mission during this arduous journey, and no doubt did many miracles, and no doubt preached the Gospel, and preached the truth as he was going. As you might expect, with Jesus on the move, right, people, especially when it comes into home turf in Judea, People know that, so people start following him. And soon a large crowd gathers him, and Matthew tells us, uh, gathers around him, and Matthew tells us that Jesus healed them, as we might expect, the compassion of Jesus, as we might see the miracles of Jesus again, time and time again. We've seen in our study of Matthew that the miracles are credibility of who Jesus is. He claims to be the Messiah. He claims to be the Son of God. And so he does miracles, and that verifies who he is. There are also some others following him. Turns out our old cranky friends, the Pharisees, have trolled him. Or, I mean, they followed him as well. And as usual, they are trying their best to trip him up. 
and to trap him. And as usual, the favorite arena of combat that they're looking at here is the law. They want to trap Jesus in an argument about the law. And so they approach Jesus, they pull the pin on this hand grenade, and they toss it over to him. And verse 3 tells us, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Riddle us this, Jesus. If you're the Messiah, you have all the knowledge and you have all the authority. Is it okay for a man to divorce his wife for any old reason at all? So there's a huge political religious thing that's happening in the background here that Matthew doesn't tell us, but that's why we do the work of exegesis and context, 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 right? There's basically two sides to this. There's basically two religious schools on this represented by two rabbis. On the one side, you have the Shammai school, which says that you could divorce your wife for serious reasons, only things like sexual immorality or something that's really wrong, serious reasons. On the other hand, you have the Hillel school, which says you can divorce your wife for any old reason at all, if you're tired of her. If she burns your dinner, you can divorce her. I'm not kidding. It's in there. Any old reason at all. So culture was divided, and guess what? You were supposed to pick one side or the other. If you're on the wrong side, you get blasted. Does this seem like 2022 America at all? Pick a side. Don't engage the issue. Just pick a side. Which side was the more dominant? What do you think, the more conservative side or the more liberal side? Well, of course, the more liberal side, right? People love their freedom. I don't want people telling me what to do. I want to do what I want to do. And so the liberal side was the, the more prevalent public opinion. The prevailing view is that you could divide, di divorce your wife for any old reason at all. Even if you found someone that you thought was prettier than she was, you could divorce her. And so with that in the background, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, what do you think, Rabbi? What side are you on? You divorce your wife for any old reason or not? Pick a side. We want to know. These people want to know. What side are you on? Are you a Democrat? Are you a Republican? Tell us. Jesus' response is just masterful. Look at verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And that he said, therefore a man shall leave his mother and his father and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is so amazing. Do you see what Jesus does here? They, they try to push him into a corner, and they say, pick a side. And he says, you want me to pick a side? Okay, I'll pick a side. Let's see what the Word of God has to say. That's my side. He starts off with a zinger on his own, and he uses this from time to time. Every once in a while. This is when I think, like, Jesus and his humanity, he was just, just, this, just almost done with the Pharisees. Like, when they get on his nerves, he brings out this. I love this. Have you guys not read that part in the Scripture? Pharisees, who have devoted their entire lives since the time they could read to reading and probably memorizing the law. Jesus says, did you not read that part? Did you forget that part? Maybe, maybe you skipped it. Maybe it's just something you don't like. Not to mention he throws shade on the Pharisees again in this way. They've dedicated their whole lives to them, and yet they don't get it. Haven't you read yeah, Jesus, we've read. You could see them rolling their eyes already. Regardless, they must have forgot what it said, so he takes them back to Genesis. And let's go there as well and read it in context. Genesis 1, 27 is what Jesus quoted. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So cards on the table, Highlands. This puts us Biblical Christians and what Jesus just said and what Jesus just quoted from the Old Testament on a collision course with culture. A collision course with the prevailing worldviews about gender, about marriage, and about sexuality. And church, we do not need to pick a cultural side. We need to engage the culture with the word of God. That's what we need to do. It should be abundantly clear where Jesus is on this. 
By quoting the Old Testament, he brings up the Old Testament in the first book, in the first chapter. And then he quotes it himself, thereby making it New Testament scripture. And if you're paying attention, right, sometimes he's, he's saying like he was in chapter 5. He's like, the law said, you know, isn't it written that you should not murder a man? And everybody's like, yeah, okay, cool. And they say, but I am saying to you this. He's on that trajectory again. He's ratcheting up what the law actually means now that he is going to fulfill it. By quoting the Old Testament, he affirms what God has written as authoritative, meaning Scripture has the right to tell us how to live, and we need to submit to it. This is not bigotry. This is not hate speech. This is the truth of the Word of God. And first, he says that God created them men and women, meaning male and female, meaning they have genders. They have biologically, God created assigned genders at birth. And the prevailing, and this is completely against, of course, the prevailing cultural view in 2022 America, is it not? And gender is not a concept that we decide for ourselves. Gender is something that the Almighty God has created us in his image. Next, Jesus formulating his argument, the second layer of this truth bomb that he's about to set off, he goes to Genesis 2. He quotes Genesis 2, 24. And he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The word of God tells us then that marriage is exclusively for one biological man and one biological woman. That's what Jesus says. Does this conflict with our current cultural perception of marriage and gender and sexuality? You bet it does. Jesus directly condemns homosexuality, homosexual marriage by quoting again Old Testament scripture and then reaffirming it himself in the New Testament. Church, this is being denied. I don't have to tell you this, but it's being denied everywhere. In pulpits two miles away from here right now, in our own town, it's being denied. And we've got to know what the Bible says. We have to. Could, could Jesus be more clear on this? He quotes the Old Testament, and he quotes it himself. These are not my words, church. These are the words of Jesus himself declaring this. And then he, he turns his attention to marriage, which was the original intent, right? He says that marriage is reserved for a man and a woman. And this marriage is a miracle of God himself, the ones that bring them together. And then he, he seals that up by quoting the last, the third level of his truth bomb, Malachi 2.15. The Italian prophet, Malachi, for those following along at home, right? Did he not make them one, he says? <clears throat> with a portion of the Spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking? God the offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Did you catch that first part in Malachi? <clears throat> I knew Satan was going to fake this one today. <clears throat> he says, he made them one. God made them one. That's, that's what Malachi says, and Jesus quotes it. It says, God made them one. And so Jesus is saying, if God made them one, how can man make them separate? It's God's, it's God's territory. God's the one doing the marrying. And Jesus pulls the pin on his own truth bomb and responds to them, not merely by choosing a side, but taking them to the word of God. Not quoting one, not two, but three passages to respond to them. So after citing three passages, here's Jesus' position. He says, God's will is for the union of a man and a woman in marriage to last forever. That's what he says. He says, God's will is for the union of a man and a woman in marriage to last forever. We don't skip the hard stuff here at Highlands Bible Church. We go book by book through the Bible. There's probably not a pastor in his right mind who would wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to preach Matthew 19 today. But that's why we do what we do, 
because we preach the hard stuff. Let's see how long this video stays up on YouTube. <laughs> Church. Two things after I drop something like this, right? Let's learn from Jesus. Your first thought as a Christian shouldn't be, what side of the culture am I on, but what does God's word say about this issue? That's what Jesus just told us. That's what Jesus just showed us. The second, the gospel is never stop sinning, right? When we engage people who are, are opposite of this worldview, right, the gospel that we bring to them is never stop sinning. The gospel is never stop doing that. The gospel isn't just do what we're supposed to do. The gospel isn't just behave yourself. The gospel isn't just clean yourself up and maybe Jesus will accept you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is we are all sinners separated from God, all of us. But we have a Savior. And he heals and he forgives and he reconciles. So we don't ever come at this by focusing just on that sin. We focus on capital S, sin. We let the Lord change hearts. We do it, we do it the right way. We do it the gospel way. But returning to, well, I have one more. Third, I hope you see that this is perhaps, again, one of the clearest statements of what the Bible says on gender, marriage, and sexuality. So if you're ever wondering about that, if you ever have anybody that's, take them here. These are the words of Jesus himself, right? And, 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 and common culture, common worldview is like, people like Jesus, they're down with Jesus. They don't like the God of the Old Testament. He has an anger problem and he kills lots of people right? But, but Jesus is that, that nice guy with the 80s feather back hair, and he loves everybody. He's either walking around with a lamb on his shoulders or something like that, talking to babies and healing people. They like Jesus. Have they ever read Matthew 19? Right? We've got to balance the, the real picture of Jesus in this. So if you ever need a clear biblical perspective on marriage, gender, and sexuality, you might not find a better one than Matthew 19. But returning to the main context of this passage, the main question they're pushing on is how long does a marriage last? When can I get out of this marriage, Jesus? The common cultural perspective was that marriage isn't valued and that you could divorce for any reason at all. Does that sound like 2022 America by chance? Jesus tells them clearly this is not the case. He says marriage is forever. I love messing with the bride and the groom on wedding day. Everybody's just ready to, they're just ready to throw up or cry or both or something. They're all just right on edge. And I have a couple little jokes that I like to do with the, the bride and the groom there. But usually when we're doing the vows and everything, I'll get to the part about it being for, forever and I'll stop or something. And I'll be like, you guys know that, right? Did you know this was forever? Did you? Do you think about that? And then they laugh like, ah. <laughs> Am I supposed to laugh? Was that a joke? I don't know. <laughs> I love doing weddings. Everybody who, is, who I'm doing premarital counseling with right now is trembling in their boots right now. But maybe we should have someone else do it other than him. <laughs> it's good fun. But the truth is, that the Bible really tells us that marriage is forever. It is forever. For one man and one woman to be with each other forever. So why, sorry for the throat thing, but I got to do that. So why is marriage between a man and a woman created by God to last forever? Many reasons. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at two. First one, we already covered from Malachi. Marriage isn't a piece of paper. It's a covenant. It's entered into intentionally between the husband, the wife, and God. And the people who attend the ceremony are not just there as spectators. They have a role in the covenant. They're witnesses that this covenant occurred, right? Which is why when somebody asks me, can I attend a homosexual union, I have to say no. Because you're not just a spectator. You're a witness and you are thereby sanctioning what's going on there, approving what's going on there, giving your seal to what's going on there. And so it is not just a piece of paper. It is a covenant. It's a covenant that the couple is making between husband and wife and God in front of their witnesses. 
God is the one who's actually doing the marrying, right? I'm just the mouthpiece. God is the one who's actually united. We saw that in Malachi, right? So God is the one doing the marrying. And if God marries someone, man can't separate that. That's the idea. God's the one joining them, so they can't. That's one reason why marriage has to last forever. It's two people becoming one flesh. How do you separate one flesh? You don't without tearing, without destruction, without damage. That's why divorce hurts so much. Because it's one flesh that has been torn apart. The word literally means welding or gluing. How do you get apart two metals that have been welded together? You've got to cut them, right? So you see that idea, it's damaging. It should last forever. The second reason that the marriage covenant is forever is because it reflects the covenant of Christ with his church. How long is Christ going to keep loving his church? Forever. He's never going to stop loving his church. And one of the classic... Um, passages on marriage is Ephesians 5. I'll read the whole chunk. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, watch this, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives also should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, I always point out that the wives get like three verses of instructions, and then the husbands get like this much. Right? So <laughs> we got a lot to look at here, husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See how he continues to link it back to the gospel? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, he might be ho- that she might be holy without blemish. Our job is to make our wives basically better Christians. That's our job as husbands. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. This is why I had to read the whole thing, because it's all throughout there. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, he quotes Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see she respects her husband. Do you see how the Apostle Paul wove that whole thing in there? Right? The way that husbands love their wives, people should see something different. They should look at a Christian wedding or a Christian marriage, if it's one year, 25 years, or 50 years, and they should see something different. They should see how Christ gave himself up for the church. And they should say, wow, that's a mirror. That's a reflection of something far greater. And it's covenant that Christ has with the church. That's what marriage does. That's the reflection of the marriage covenant. That's why, that's why a marriage has to last forever. Paul's saying the way the marriage covenant works with the husband as a spiritual leader is reflective of the way Christ leads his people leads us to God. What about when marriages go bad? What about when everything breaks down? What about persistent marital conflict? Is there ever a cause for divorce? And that's where Jesus goes next. Now <clears throat> that he has set the biblical foundation of what marriage means. Look at verse 7. Matthew 19. When I look at the wrong chapter, I'm always momentarily terrorized why, why the words aren't making sense. 19, chapter, uh, verse 7. Then they said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And so I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So the Pharisees retreat, as legalists often do, right to a loophole. They probably think they have Jesus now because maybe, maybe they think that Jesus forgot this part in Deuteronomy that they quoted where Moses said and was teaching about a certificate of divorce. 
And so maybe they're thinking, aha, Jesus, we got you now. You said what you just said was crazy talk. But Moses said we could get a divorce. So we just pit you up against the big Mo. And that's not, that's not a good place to be. Because Moses usually wins, Jesus, so we got you now. What they're talking about is Deuteronomy 24, in a confusing passage, which we'll do our best to separate it. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if he finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who has sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so... Thank you, Moses. That didn't help even a little bit. But we've got to do some exegetical work here, some context to separate this out. What's, but Highlanders aren't scared, right? We're good. We're going we're gonna, we're gonna to get through this, right? He, he says, listen, w- well, what was that thing about Moses when he let us divorce our wives? You remember that, right? You know, if you've read the whole Bible, Jesus, like in, if you've remembered, did you not read that part? Like you got to, there's some swag going on there for sure, Right? Here's what was going on. Things got so bad in Israel that men were divorcing their wives for any reason at all. But worse than that, they weren't divorcing them actually at all. They were just dumping them. And if you were a woman in the Old Testament time and you did not have an official certificate of divorce, you were in a lot of trouble. You were very vulnerable. You couldn't buy things. You couldn't work probably couldn't have any legal standing at all. There's no protection of a man. You were completely on your own. You're out of your father's house, but now you don't have a divorce certificate either. And so Moses put this temporary provision in the law that says, if you are going to divorce your wife for a legitimate reason, which we have to believe that's what Moses was talking about, if you found some indecency in her, at least write her a certificate of divorce so that she will be cared for, so she can be protected. It's a temporary provision in the law, which they told us is based on their hardness of heart. It's based on their sinfulness. And the Pharisees see this Moses loophole, and they just want to drive a truck through it. That says, cool, that means we can get a divorce for anything we want. And that's not what Moses said. And that's not what that means. Moses goes on to talk about what happens if she gets married again? And It's probably something about a dowry where the husband is probably trying to get the double dowry. Like, I married her again, so that means I get more sheep and more oxen. It's like, no, that's, you're not going to cheat the family that way. It's probably what it means. It's a confusing passage. But the point is clear. That is not what Moses meant. Moses was not giving you license just to divorce your wives for any old reason in the world. So Pharisees try to cling to this tiny loophole in order to justify their current practice of divorcing their wives for any reason at all. France, R.T. France writes this, it should never have been. The existence of divorce legislation is a pointer not to divine approval of divorce, but to human sinfulness. Jesus points out that it was because of the hardness and sinfulness of their hearts that he did this, but it's not the way it was designed. Jesus says, not the way it's supposed to be from the beginning in Matthew. He was relegating, he was managing sin, the greater sin versus another sin versus the the good of the society. He was managing that for their good. It was a concession, not a command. And if you see that in the Greek, they actually use two different words there. And the Pharisees tried to hang on that word that says, well, then why did Moses command us to do this? And Jesus said, he didn't command you, he allowed you to do it. There's a big difference there. But then Jesus, now that this whole foundation is is set, he drops the hammer in verse 9. 
And he says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Note the words Jesus uses, just like in chapter 5 when he quoted the law, right? Again, he says, you've heard it said, right? But I'm saying to you, right? And so look, look at it with me. He says, this is what it's been said, but this is what you think. This is what the culture says. This is what some of the Pharisees say, but I am saying to you this. I'm saying to you more. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and, and gets married again, commits adultery. Another jaw drop moment for sure, for everyone who heard that. And Jesus clarifies the main issue here. Each side of the debate has different ideas of what the grounds for divorce really were. Either it was liberal for anything at all, or it was conservative for only the serious stuff. And Jesus says, no, there's one reason. Sexual immorality. And just as he did in the law in chapter 5, he raises the standard even more. He tells them there's only one reason. And so what does that mean practically in the culture? What does that mean practically in our culture in 2022 America? It means this. God's will does not include divorce, except in very rare circumstances. God's will does not include divorce. And when I say God's will, right, we've got to separate that from like the holy decrees of God into God's, God's will of desire, in other words, right? If I go and I, let's think of something ridiculous, go steal from the CVS, right? That's not God's will for me. He doesn't want me to do that. It's against his will. Why do we know that? Because scripture says, thou shalt not steal. I want King James for a minute there. I'm not sure why. That's not God's will for us to sin. This is how, when I say it's not God's will to get a divorce, that means it's sinful to get a divorce, except if you're dealing with sexual immorality in very, very rare circumstances. And again, Highlands, note that we have a very countercultural Jesus here, don't we? How different is the Jesus of the Bible than the common understanding of who Jesus is in our culture? He has much to say about marriage, gender, and sexuality, and that includes divorce. And he says divorce is almost never an option. And don't forget, this is on the heels of Matthew 18, right? Context. What did he just talk about in Matthew 18? Forgiveness. Reconciliation. He gave us a process, right? So that means the first course of action, church, Christians, is never to run to the divorce lawyer. It's to run to the church, is to be reconciled. It's to try. Jesus tells them if you get a divorce for anything other than unrepentant, keyword, sexual immorality, it is sin. And actually, it's a double sin because if you get remarried, you were still married to the first person, so now you're committing adultery, he says. And if your ex-wife gets married, so is she. And if you recall, he's already said this before. This is not new stuff. Matthew 5, 31 it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, quoting Deuteronomy. But I say to you, see the ratching, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery because he's assuming they would get remarried. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is not the first time Jesus has said this. This is a repeat. And when you repeat stuff in the Bible, it's important. He's speaking directly to us. Jesus gives a scripturally valid reason for divorce, and it is not what they want to hear at all. We recognize in the full counsel of scripture, we have another reason from the Apostle Paul in the case of a non-believing spouse deserting a believing spouse. And again, after attempted reconciliation, which is always the first course of action, if that doesn't happen then that is another option, sadly, in very rare circumstances for divorce, right? So, so we, like Christian history throughout Christian history and places like the Westminster Confession of Faith or other, other things like that, will recognize two valid reasons for divorce, but they are only in very rare situations and they're only after attempted reconciliation because that's what Jesus just walked us through in Matthew 18. We also have seen, sadly, 
In other cases, again, very rare cases, maybe things are so bad, maybe things are so broken and dysfunctional, maybe there's abuse or, or maybe they've just tried reconciliation with all of those things for years and you get to the point where it says that maybe divorce is the least destructive option, right? That's not something that's officially sanctioned by Jesus. It's not something that we might officially sanction either, but, but you got to look at it sometimes to say, what's doing the more damage here, right? And that's a terrible place to be in. But Jesus is very clear. Remarriage is probably not an option in those situations because he only gives us one with, a, with sexual immorality, unrepentant sexual immorality, right? It's assumed that they would get remarried. That's why Jesus is saying, if you do it for any other reason and you get remarried... You're, you're committing adultery, he says. The first course of action, church, is never divorce. It's always repentance. It's always reconciliation. And sometimes that, that takes a long time. But Jesus bore with us a long time, didn't he? Jesus has grace with us. It's another reason, of course, why we value church membership here. We have to protect one another. If someone's continually breaking the marriage covenant and living in sexual sin, for example, we have a biblical process to protect the other spouse, to step in there and say, no, you just can't trample the marriage covenant like this and call yourself a member. It doesn't work like that. Another reason for membership is protection. We have biblical recourse in Matthew 18 of a church discipline procedure. But in our culture, church, like then, people just want the out, don't they? Number one reason for divorce I read in a survey online was I just don't feel the same way about them anymore. Okay. I loved my wife. I don't feel the same way about her when I was 18 years old. I don't feel like I'm going to have sick to my stomach and I'm, I'm trying to tread carefully here. <laughs> when, she, when she walks into a room, I don't break out in the cold sweats and get butterflies in my stomach and... still love her, right? So, so 2022 America is going to tell us to live by our feelings. And if I don't feel in love with my wife anymore, therefore I probably should do something else to make myself feel better about myself. That's sin. It's not what we're talking about. That's the number one reason for divorce in America. Number two, is communication issues, shocker. And number three <laughs> is trust issues also, all related, right? And with the divorce rate among Christians nearly as high as the world, we see unrepentant sexual immorality is not usually on the radar. It's not usually one of the reasons that comes up, right? It is a very, very rare thing. We've got to remember that. Divorce is not God's will, except in very rare situations. And so with this undoubtedly hitting very heavy with many of us, right, let me say two things. First, if you've been sinned against in marriage, especially sexually, especially cheated on or something like that, as hard as that is, it is a profound opportunity to show the depth of forgiveness that is available in Jesus Christ. We talked about it the other week ago, right? It's just like the, the, the unforgiving servant, right? How can I possibly forgive him? Right? How can you possibly forgive him? Well, because your master forgave you 20 years pay, and you're going to forgive him. That's where we have to reconcile with the depth of our own sin that, yeah, sexual immorality, adultery, and marriage, you cannot probably get a more destructive thing than that. But even that is not the depth of what we have sinned against God, isn't that crazy? God says, that's why you can show the depth of my forgiveness by actually working towards reconciliation and forgiveness. And boy, oh boy, when a marriage is restored after adultery or something like that or sexual sin, it is such a picture of the gospel. It is such a picture of the depth of God's forgiveness. We sometimes see it and it's beautiful. It's a picture of the massive transformational power of the gospel of Jesus. And second, if you have a sinful divorce in your past, maybe before you came to know Christ, 
there's forgiveness, right? We're not, we're not relegated to some other place off on the reservation, right? There's forgiveness. Go to Jesus. Maybe you haven't even thought about that. Maybe you thought, I never really asked Jesus. I never really reconciled the fact that I had a sinful divorce in my past at the cross with Jesus Christ. Go there. Do it. Be forgiven. If you've, if you've had a sinful divorce and you're married again, you're married. You're married. Let that marriage glorify God. Do all that you can do to use that marriage to the glory of God, but definitely ask for forgiveness from the cross, and he will grant it to you. He will give you that grace. He will give you that mercy. Go like the servant before the master in chapter 18 and say, have mercy on me. Forgive me, and he will. He promises us. Focus on the covenant that you have now in marriage. The impact of the strength of these words are not lost on us. And they're not lost on the disciples either. And we can see that clearly in their reaction. Look at the last chunk in verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. I'm not sure if any of them were married at this point, but if their wives were in earshot, they're definitely sleeping on the couch for a long time. That's one thing I want to know. The disciples said to him, If that's the way it is, why get married at all? But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it is given. For there are eunuchs, and I know when we see that word, we got to remember, we got to kind of contextualize that, right? Jesus is saying people who are single, people who either cannot have children because they just can't biologically, or people who are single or have chosen that way. Very, very rare circumstances. Somebody would have made themselves a eunuch, but I guess it could have happened, right? He's saying these people who are single, not everyone can receive this saying. But those to whom it is given, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who have, been, have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. We see the, the, the disciples are flabbergasted at this. That's, that's divorce? Otherwise, I'm just supposed to stay married to her forever? Why get married at all? That's so hard. And Jesus says, you're right. He says, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to whom it is given. And I firmly believe that he is actually responding to their statement, not to his teaching. Because it doesn't make any sense to me, and lots of other commentators, just not me. But it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me that Jesus would just say all this stuff about marriage and says, yeah, well, if you receive it, you receive it. If you don't, you don't. No, 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 no. What he says stands. The disciples' reaction that says, well, then why? Maybe I should just stay single. And Jesus says, you're right. If you can do that, do it. You're right. Better to stay single than to go into a marriage and not treat it as the most honorable thing you possibly can. Better to stay single than to go into a marriage and, and, and not treat it like the covenant that it truly is. He responds to their statement. He basically agrees with them. He says, yeah, you're right. Singleness is a viable option. But not everybody can do that. Whoever can receive it, whoever can do it, okay. You're right. He cites the examples again of eunuchs, meaning those who are born or have chosen voluntarily to not marry, to not mate. There have always been single people. But Jesus says, you need to still go into that even with your eyes wide open. And so I'll say this, God's will could include singleness, and that's okay. God's will could include singleness, and that's okay. We live in such a hyper-sexualized culture, don't we? One in which our sexuality is said to literally be who we are. That's the huge disconnect biblically as well. Right? I am this way. And if you don't agree with me being this way, therefore you don't even see that I exist. You're doing violence to my very essence by not seeing my sexual preference. That is nonsense. Just because we disagree with someone doesn't mean personally that we, we, we don't even recognize their humanity, their essence. We're so much more than our sexual identity. Why does the world want to boil everything down to just our sexual identity? 
It's nonsense. And sometimes in the church, we want to boil everything down to whether or not you have a spouse. That's equally as harmful. No, maybe not equally as harmful, but it's harmful. Jesus responds to them by saying, you're right. Maybe some of you will actually choose a life of celibacy and singleness. And that's okay. If you can receive it, receive it. Remember, Jesus himself never married. Remember, a lot of the disciples never married. Remember, the apostle Paul never married. Remember, midweek, shameless plug, Charles Simeon, 54 years as a pastor, never married. One author put it this way, Jesus and Paul commend singleness for the spread of God's kingdom. Many people think that you have to be married in order to live a complete life, but that is simply not true. In the church, again, we run the risk of idolizing marriage. We also run the risk then of looking at single people like they're somehow second-class citizens or something, and that is just not true. We have to be aware of both of those pitfalls. Singleness could be in the plan, and that's okay. It's a good and natural thing to want to get married, but we also then have to I do a lot of this, right? We also have to remember then to not let the desire for a good thing become a God thing. I want a spouse, and I want a spouse so bad that that is consuming me. That is what it is. Psalm 16.4 tells us the sorrows of those who run after other gods will multiply. Whatever that idol is, your sorrows will multiply until you realize that your joy, your identity, your purpose, your meaning is not in whatever it is, finding a spouse, it's in Jesus Christ. Marriage is hard. Singleness is hard. But please hear me on this. It is better to be single than to make a poor choice just to get married. We have a little, in our house, before I had a law office, right, I'd have to do a lot of counseling at our house, and we'd send the kids downstairs, right? And it's a small house. Kids could hear everything, right? And so the couple would leave, and eventually they had to come up looking for food, and one of our kids would go to the refrigerator, and it would get quiet, and she'd look at me, and she'd go, I know, oh, I just said who it was. And she <laughs> only have two kids, <laughs> one of each. Sorry, Mo. She'd say, I know, I know, I know. Be careful who you marry. It's better to remain single than to just be married for the sake of being married to someone that you have no business being married to. And Jesus says, you're right. You need to take marriage that seriously for those who are able to receive it. Well, church, where does this leave us? Where does this leave us? It leaves us again with a countercultural Jesus, and we all together are his countercultural followers in this. We are all the proverbial salmon swimming upstream against a massive tidal wave of culture that says completely the opposite. As such, we are not just to pick sides of this issue. It has to be from God. It has to be from God's word. And so I'll give you the big idea simply as this, that God defines gender, marriage, and sexuality, not culture. God defines gender, marriage, and sexuality, not culture. And I hope and I pray that you see this as not my words, that you see this clearly as Jesus himself, these words from himself. It's pretty hard to make it say something different. I'm sure people try, or if they venture into this passage at all. It's crystal clear. The Pharisees try and draw him into a culture debate to make him pick a side, and he masterfully says, I'm not just picking a side. I'm going right to the word of God, and here's what it says. How about us? When we're up against that tidal wave of opposing public opinion, we've got to stand strong. We do not make apologies for the word of God. I am not apologizing for the word of God this morning. I can't. We've got to stand on it. This is not a political position. This is a biblical position that has to inform our politics. You see that? Our Christian worldview has to inform everything about us. But this has been so poorly handled in the church over centuries, I want to end on a note of caution and a note on grace. Caution, because again, the gospel is never just stop sinning and get your act together. Clean yourself up. God cleans us. That's the point. 
We can't clean ourselves up. So when we look at, at friends or we look at other things who are struggling with this or on other sides of the issue, our message to them is not just stop doing that. Stop doing that. Our message is we're all sinners. And we have a Savior. And that's where the grace comes in. In his grace, he forgives our debt that we could never repay. And so then what? We need to extend that grace to others. Every single human being, hear me, every single human being, regardless of who they say they are, regardless of their sexuality, regardless of whatever, is an image bearer, created in the image of God, having dignity, merit, and worth because of that. No matter what their thoughts are, We love because Christ first loved us. We also have to be very clear what Scripture says about these issues. And church, we need to stand on them. We invite all, we invite everyone to come and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are just beggars telling another beggar where to find a crust of bread. But we must engage culture with a biblical worldview. In our culture, we have lost the ability to disagree with someone respectfully. The moment we disagree with somebody, what? Oh, you're on that side. Okay, you're over there. Conversation over. No, 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 no. We can't be like that. That's not the model Jesus gives us. Jesus himself tells us that marriage is between one man and one woman, and that is to last forever. Jesus tells us that except in very rare circumstances, divorce is sinful. Jesus tells us that marriage is to be so highly regarded that singleness may be an option for some. And we press in with caution, with grace, and we stand on the clear, firm ground of God's word. We have to, church. The ground is literally changing all around us. The changes that have been to gender, marriage, and sexuality over the last decade are jaw-dropping. This doesn't change. We stand on this. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that, Lord, it... You have said it so clearly. I'm just struck by the fact that, that Jesus quotes Genesis 1.27 where he, he starts talking about gender. Why? Because you knew in 2022 your church would be facing this. Lord, help us to proceed with caution. Help us to proceed with love. Help us to proceed with the gospel of Jesus first and foremost. Lord, And let us stand on the authoritative word of God. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.